2007, October 26. Today is Lecture 26, Telescopes. So we're going to finish our discussion of light and matter today by answering one of the more interesting questions that we have left totally unposed. So how do we go about measuring light anyway? What is the tools that we use? What are the tools of the astronomer for making these spectroscopic measurements, for measuring brightness, for measuring things in the sky using light? And the answer is, we use telescopes. Now, this lecture is going to be a little different than some because a lot of the really important information is going to be up front because one of the things this lecture gives me an opportunity to do is talk about not just telescopes in general, which is the main part of the lecture, but to talk about Ohio State's telescopes. Who knows how many telescopes, Ohio State research telescopes, we actually have access to? Any of you know, how many of you know we even have research telescopes? Well, hopefully what you'll learn by the end of today is that Ohio State has a surprising array of astronomical uh, research telescopes available. The key ideas today are to talk about the types of telescopes, the refracting telescope, which uses lenses as a collecting uh, element, and reflecting telescopes that use mirrors to do the, do the uh, collection of light. These are the two different basic designs of telescope. Galileo's, for example, was a lens telescope, but all modern research telescopes are big mirror telescopes. Why is that? Well, we'll see that in just a second here. Once you build a telescope, you've got to put it somewhere to use it, and we'll say a little bit about how we go about choosing observatory sites. Central Ohio, not so good. High, dry Atacama Desert, a lot better. So we'll talk a little bit about what the considerations are. Sometimes we even have to go into orbit. And finally, say talk a little bit about other types of telescopes, radio telescopes and space telescopes, which get above the Earth's atmosphere and can work with photons that can't normally reach the ground. And then I'll finish up by talking a bit about Ohio State's research facilities and what you, you actually as students have the potential to have access to in some way or another. Turns out that we all carry at least two telescopes around with, it, with, it, with ourselves. These telescopes are built in. They're naturally occurring. They're, in fact, the human eye is a primitive type of telescope. It's got a very small collecting area. When the pupil is wide open in the darkest possible conditions and dilated, it probably has a collecting area of about one square centimeter or, or just under one square centimeter. Actually, probably less, more like half a square centimeter. The te telescope inside the eye is the simplest possible. It's a lens, which actually has a marvelous autofocus device attached to it, along with an auto, uh, auto aperture device, which can change varying light conditions. And it has an extremely sensitive detector sitting at the back of it, at the focal plane of the eye, which is connected up to a marvelously, um, marvelously set up um, image processing system. In fact, the image processing system of the human brain is better than anything we've been able to come up with on a computer so far. The only problem with the human brain is that I cannot quantify what it is I see with the eye. I can say, yeah, that looks kind of bright, yeah, that's a little faint, that's red, green, or blue. It's not a very precise thing, but it has a lot of advantages. One is that it can be the computer program behind it, if you will, can be very easily trained to recognize patterns, to notice a star is there that wasn't there the night before, and it can be mass-produced with unskilled labor, which is even better. They're cheap. But they're kind of an addict. They, they served us pretty good as telescopes for observing the sky, even to this day, certainly for all of human history. But, you know, after a while, you just need something more. You need to get a little bit more light. You need to gather that light up. And you need to put it into a camera or a spectrograph and do something with that light and analyze it. 
Turns out that the single figure of merit that's most important for an astronomical telescope is something known as the light gathering power. The light gathering power is basically what it says, how much light you can gather. And it turns out to be measured as the total collecting area of the telescope. We don't normally think about the collecting area of the eye, but it's actually not the magnification of the eye that matters, it's the collecting area. How much of a catcher I've got for all those photons coming down from space. And it works out as a very simple mathematics. The bigger the area, the more light it gathers. Let's say, just as an analogy, instead of trying to gather photons from the sky, I'm trying to gather raindrops. I want to gather up the water from raindrops and, and bring it into a catch basin. Well, running around with a little styrofoam cup trying to catch raindrops is not very efficient. But if I can spread a gigantic sheet, bend it a little bit in the middle and hang the cup off of it, then I can collect all the raindrops that fall on that huge sheet and very efficiently collect a full cup of water to drink. Same is true of a telescope. We got these little teeny telescopes in our heads here, but they only catch a little tiny bit of the starlight that comes down from the sky. What if I could have a telescope whose collecting area is about the size of the circle of this room? Then I could collect a huge number of photons, concentrate them together into a camera or a spectrograph, and read off the spectrum or the image of the object on the sky. And that's the whole, the whole point. Is we want a lot of collecting area. We usually express the size of a telescope, not so much in terms of collecting area, but in terms of the diameter of, it, of, its, of its primary collector, be that a lens or a mirror or something else. This light gathering power, because we scale like the diameter, the light gathering power scales like the square of the diameter. So if I go from a one meter telescope to a 10 meter telescope, the light gathering power of that 10 meter telescope is 10 squared or 100 times greater than that of a one meter telescope. And it's that per area gain in light gathering power that's really the really big figure of merit. So for example, when you go from the eye, the eye is about a half a square centimeter, which means you know, on average, it's, you know, maybe about a half a centimeter across is a good way of, of thinking about it. So I got a half a centimeter across telescope, add up two together, they kind of combine the light together in the brain, I got one square centimeter, one centimeter across equivalent, say. But I go up to a one meter telescope, that's 100 squared, or 10,000 times the light gathering power of the human eye. So even going to a relatively modest one meter diameter telescope is a tremendous gain. So how do we go about building these big light collectors and using them as concentrators? So they're not, collecting the light is one thing. It's like laying out a sheet to collect raindrops. If you just lay the sheet out, it just gets wet. But if you design the sheet to be water repellent so the water runs off it, maybe you dimple it in the bottom so the water runs down to a single collection point, to make my rain collector useful, I have to not only gather the raindrops, but concentrate them into some place. The same is true of the design of a telescope. I want to use a large collector of light and then concentrate or bring that light to a focus into my, my eye, my camera, or maybe even a spectrograph or some other instrument. So the simplest type of telescope we can get is the one we're all most familiar with. That's a refracting telescope. The collector we're going to use is a clear glass lens whose shape is kind of like a lentil bean in cross-section. In fact, that's why lenses are called lenses, because of their resemblance to the lentil bean. The 
curved surface of that glass serves to take incoming rays of light, which would normally just go straight, and bends them in a particular way. So I designed the curvature of this piece of glass and maybe combine it with other pieces of glass to allow all the light that would normally have fallen into that area to concentrate and come to a focus down at a point behind the lens. I then go past this focal point and maybe put a secondary lens in to bring that image out to a very convenient spot. So you can make a telescope with just one lens and you kind of hold it up to your eye and the second lens might in fact be your, the lens in your eye and that forms a nice little compound optical system and you can form images. You've taken all the light in that little lens you're holding out at arm's length and concentrating it down into your eye. But if you think about it, kind of holding lenses at arm's length is kind of inconvenient. And as Galileo and Hans Lipperhey and all those people figured out in the 17th century, you put those lenses into tubes, you put a little extra lens at the back, and you can actually form a very nice image and have a convenient carrier. And that's exactly what I've drawn here is a variation on this is very similar to Galileo's telescope. I have a secondary focal plane outside the main tube that's holding it all together. And I could put a camera here, like a piece of camera film or a digital sensor. I could put a feed to a spectrograph in here, or I could stick my eye, just have a nice little compound optical system and look and see through the telescope. <coughs> Reflecting teles refracting telescopes are called refracting because the property of glasses and clear materials that they bend light is called refraction. Refracting telescopes were the most common form of telescope before the beginning of the 20th century. In fact, the world's largest telescope at the beginning of the world's largest research telescope at the beginning of the 20th century was a 36-inch diameter lens telescope at the Lick Observatory in California. It was a single lens, three feet apart. The very largest such lens ever made into a research telescope is this telescope right here. It's a 40-inch telescope at Yerkes Observatory up in uh, Williams Bay, up, near Wisco up in Wisconsin. Turns out that you can only make lenses so big. One of the things that limits the size of the lens you can big is just the, how big it can be is the sheer mass of the lens. Glass is pretty heavy stuff. And as you make bigger and bigger lenses, the lens becomes so heavy it begins to bend and sag under its own weight. And the thing is, for a lens to work just right, it's got to be curved just so to bring the light to a focus all at one place. Now, a lot of you wear glasses, and some of you have contact lenses. You know that if I was to take these, I've got these little plastic lenses here. If I took these and heated them up and bended the lens out of shape, they'd be crappy glasses. I wouldn't get a nice, clear view of all of you this way. I would just All my view would be blurred and distorted. So if I bend the lenses too much, I lose the, the utility of having the lenses to correct my vision. The same is true of a big telescope. If the lens is so heavy it sags under its own weight, it distorts the image, it sprays the light all over the place, and I lose that concentration and image quality. It turns out that the practical limit is about 40 inches, or about one meter across. At that point, all forms of glass that we know how to make are so heavy that the thing basically distorts under its own weight. The other problem is illustrated by this picture of the Yerkes telescope here. Lenses usually have very, very long distances behind them for coming to focus, called the focal length. As a consequence, you've got a gigantic multi-ton chunk of glass out at the end of a huge steel tube. In order to keep that big steel tube from sagging under its own weight, you have to build it really hefty, use lots of steel, and pretty soon the thing is getting long, unwieldy, and heavy as hell and it becomes really, really hard to use. 
you have to have these gigantic buildings to enclose them that are so big they're mostly empty space. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in the construction trades, but building a big building like that with the moving dome is really expensive. And so very quickly, the economies of these telescopes caught up with them, and it was just practically impossible to build them any bigger than 40 inches across. In fact, this 40-inch Yerkes telescope is the very largest lens-based refracting telescope ever built. They'd run out of the practical limit of how big they can make them, but that still wasn't enough. You know, we, we, we astronomers are really greedy. We want all the photons we can possibly get. We need to get more light, more, more, more. So how do we do that? Well, the other way is an alternative technology, which is a reflecting telescope. It's all done with mirrors, as the old saying goes. This telescope was invented by James Gregory and Isaac Newton back in the um, end of the 18th century. It consists of, instead of using big curved lenses to concentrate light, it uses a big curved mirror. If you've ever used like a shaving mirror or one of those sort of advanced cosmetic mirrors that makes your face look bigger, you get the basic principle behind it. The curved mirror gathers and focuses the light. So the light coming in from the outside hits the mirror and is bent by bouncing off of this curved surface into a single focal point. So it collects and concentrates the light at a single focus. Now, just using a single mirror is a little inconvenient. It all comes to a focus, but it's because it's reflection, it reflects back into the beam where you're looking. So if I wanted to take a look into this prime focus telescope, I'd have to stick my head in there. So now I'm sticking my head in front of my telescope and I'm blocking part of the light. So I've gone to all this trouble to build a big collecting area and then I step in front of the stupid thing. So you can put stuff up at prime focus, but you're blocking part of the light. So one of the tricks we use is to bring a second or even a third mirror into play, which intercepts the light in between. We block as little as we can get away with and direct the light, either direct it back out a hole in the back or direct it out to the side. And then I could put my head up there and look through it or put a camera or a spectrograph on it and not block my light. So we use a large primary mirror is the primary collecting element. That's what, de that's, what that's what defines the total collecting area of the telescope. And remember, it's collecting area that matters. And then a variety of different ways of putting secondary mirrors in to direct the light outwards outside of the tube of the telescope here and out to where I can put instruments or people or, and stuff like that. So let's look at a couple of these different types of designs of reflecting telescopes. This one here shows you one of the advantages of a reflecting telescope. I put a secondary mirror in place here. The light comes down, comes up off the mirror, bounces back, and comes up to a focus here at the back. Now this has a couple of advantages. With the lens, a lens telescope I have to hold by the edges because the lens is clear and I've got to have light passing through the lens that does the concentration. Just like if you look at, for example, at my glasses, the, the, the rim of the glass glasses are held holding on those lenses by the outside. It doesn't do any good if I held my lenses like this because my thumb gets in the way. But with a mirror, I can hold the mirror from the back, which means I can build a very, very big, heavy-duty superstructure to keep it from sagging under its own weight. So in principle, I can construct extremely large mirrors because I can back support them. I can build steel structures and whiffle trees and all kinds of funky engineering things to hold that mirror in shape and not have it sag under its own weight. 
Furthermore, I have a huge mounting surface back here that I could hook instruments up to. I could hook up a camera or a spectrograph. I could even hang, a, if it's a big enough telescope, I could put in a swiveling lazy boy chair for me to sit in and sit back there and never block my beam. I just get a little bit of loss up front for putting in the mirror, and I got to drill a hole in the back of the mirror. Sounds like someone's still trying to find their cell phone upstairs. That's the, that's the real big advantage of reflecting telescopes. They can be made almost arbitrarily large. So while the largest refracting telescope ever made was only about 40 inches across, only about that big, the largest reflecting telescope in the world now is a little over 10 meters across, which would more than comfortably fill a lot of the bullpit down in here. And we're now considering designs for next generation large telescopes, which are getting up to 40, 50, or even 100 meters in diameter. The practical limit is pretty much limited now by how much money you got. Okay, if I want to build a 100 meter class telescope, we're looking at anywhere from two to three billion dollars, or actually it's probably gonna be billion euros, because I don't think the US is gonna do it. So here are some examples of the evolution of the reflecting telescope. This is Isaac Newton's original reflecting telescope. It's of a design called a Newtonian design. He put a little flat mirror in front to direct the light out to a little lens to work as an eyepiece. And then you focus the telescope by adjusting this tube here. This is actually now on display in a museum in Cambridge. This is one of the largest single mirror telescopes made recently. It's the 8.1 meter diameter Gemini North telescope. Again, you can see the beauty of the design of the, of the mirror telescope design. All the support structure is behind the telescope. So all the big steel and everything, to hold up the mirror, I just need sort of an open, lightweight space frame structure. And all the drive mechanisms and things that point the telescope with exquisite precision are behind it. So there's lots of places. I can put multi-ton instruments down here at the back and never have to worry about the flimsy structure holding up the little tiny mirror. I can also build the dish of these mirrors really, really deep, which means they come to a focus really fast, what's called a fast focal length uh, mirror. That means I can build the telescopes short and squat, and I can shrink the size of the building they're in. If I can shrink the size of the building, I've reduced the total cost to build the telescope. So even a telescope like the Gemini telescope, if I had built that using lenses or even in old-style mirror telescopes, would cost close to a billion dollars, but the Gemini North Telescope was built for just under 100 million. Okay, maybe it's a distortion of the big telescope data say, ah, yeah, just 100 million. But, you know, there's guys out there who've made more than 100, there are, what, 100, 100 billionaires in the world? Wish they would sort of lay some money on us for this stuff. Here's the biggest single piece mirror ever made to date. It's 8.4 meters in, ah, stop that. It's 8.4 meters in diameter. There's a optician there for scale. Now, the problem with building big mirrors is that big mirrors also pretty soon are very heavy, and they start to sag under their own weight. But the beauty of the mirror is you don't have to look through it. You just have to bounce off the surface. So you can play some interesting games by making your mirror hollow. In this case, you can see this honeycomb structure in the back. We've taken a leaf from the bees, as it were, and you can build very, very strong, very lightweight surfaces by essentially honeycombing them. Although the honeycomb in here is not made of bee spit and wax, it's made of glass. And this thing is actually cast in a mold where you put glass on top of the mold, you spin the mold up, turn on the furnace, 
the glass melts and flows into the honeycomb shape and then flows out into the curved surface of the front of the mirror. You then back the temperature off the furnace until the glass solidifies in that shape, all the while spinning around at 7 RPM. And then when it gets cool enough to open up, after about three or four months in the oven, you crack it open, you clean out the material behind it, and you have a single piece 8.4 meter diameter mirror. And this is so cool, we did it twice. And we're going to use two of these mirrors in the giant binocular telescope that Ohio State's part of. The other trick for making really gigantic mirrors is to build them in segments. This particular mirror is part of one of the world's largest telescopes, the 10 meter diameter Keck, oops, 10 meter diameter Keck telescope. Instead of using a single piece mirror, it uses 36 hexagonal segments, each of which is only about a meter and a half across. Those hexagonal segments tile together, and then you use computers and actuators to push them into the curved shape that you need to mimic a single 10 meter diameter curved bold surface. It has a lot of advantages. You can build each of the segments in turn. You can uh, put an aluminum coating on the surface very easily. You can support them. They're individually lightweight. And then you build a larger superstructure to go over them. And so the Keck telescope, Keck 1 and Keck 2, are right now the largest optical telescopes in the world. There's a third segmented mirror telescope called the uh, Gran Telescopo de Canarias, built by a consortium of Spain, the UK, and the United States, which is of this same Keck multi-leaf design, but just so they stayed ahead of the Joneses, it's ever so slightly bigger. It's like 10 and a half meters instead of 10. So now, now they are the world's largest telescope. Well, they were until a few months ago. So once you build one of these gigantic telescopes, the next trick is you've got to go put them somewhere to, to be useful. Putting them in a cold, damp place like central Ohio, probably not such a good idea. So what you want to do is you want to sight your telescope in a place that's got a number of, of characteristics that make it good for astronomy. You want to be far away from large cities because you want dark skies. All you have to do is walk out in Columbus and you can barely see any stars. You want to get far from any city lights. You want to get far from population. So you're going to get remote. You want a place where the weather is clear and dry most of the year. And that pretty much is going to tell you that you're going to be in desert areas. Finally, you want good, steady atmospheric seeing. You don't want a lot of wind turbulence. You don't want a lot of wind coming by to shake your telescope and, and jitter up the sky. So you're going to be talking about clear, high, dry sites, probably on tops of mountains, very, very far from habitation. The very best sites in the world for sighting a, putting a telescope on the ground turn out to be high, dry, desert mountain peaks. For example, one of the premier sites in the world for sighting telescopes is the Chilean Andes, particularly up in the northern part of Chile, where you're getting into the high Atacama Desert. So you're getting up to altitudes of 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, even 5,000 meters. For those of you who don't, don't like your meters, there are actually modern telescopes which you're planning which will go up to 16,000 feet elevation. That's going to be brutal to work up there. But it's high and it's bone dry, so they're great sites. The summit of Mauna Kea, the big, big extinct volcanic peak on the big island of Hawaii, it's 14,000 feet, 4,000 meters above sea level. It's really high, it's really dry. All the weather's down below. It's bone dry, and you get these wonderful low-flowing winds off the Pacific, which evens out the seeing. And it can be a superb sight. For some of the best seeing I've ever seen in the world is actually from the summit of Mauna Kea. It's really tough to work up there because you can barely breathe, but it's marvelous seeing. And 
The southwestern United States and Arizona, particularly places like Kitt Peak and Mount Hopkins just outside of Tucson, those sites were really good about 50 years ago, but they're beginning to degrade because of the growth of the southwest cities, particularly the city of Tucson. And Mount Graham, which is down in southeastern Arizona, which is a high, dry mountain site surrounded by desert, just sort of between Arizona and just getting towards the, uh, the western border with New Mexico, and is actually pretty far from habitation. The nearest big town is a place called Safford, which is 30,000 people or so. Here's an example of where you want to put your telescope. This is a composite of a satellite view of the United States at night with all the lights on. So you can see the outline. There's uh, Chicagoland. There's the Lake Michigan there. Uh, there's, um, there you're getting up to Cleveland right there. And there's uh, Columbus sitting right in there. There's all New York and uh, all the entire big eastern seaboard. It's expected by the year 2010, 2020, this will be one continuous wash of light all the way down to the Florida Keys, including Atlanta. There's all kinds of places. There's, uh, there's, there's Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas there. Los Angeles, San Francisco, so stay away from habitation. But that's the grids here. You can see the grid pattern of all the counties and all the street lights and the little towns that grew up on the grid patterns of the counties out through all the Middle West until finally you get to the great open prairies and it's just nothing. Here's out here, West Texas. It's dark. McDonald Observatory out in West Texas. It's so dark out there. Back when I used to work out there in 88, 89, you could count the number of lights on the horizon on your hands and still have fingers left for gesturing. Um, it was so dark on one of the nights, I actually saw my shadow cast on the dome by the planet Venus. You had to look carefully and play some you know, dark vision games, but you could actually see as I moved my hand, I could see the motion of my shadow being cast by Venus. It's dark. Down here in Mexico and down here on the Baja Peninsula are other possible northern hemisphere sites. I don't have a similar picture for... Um, South America, but it's extremely dark and very unpopulated in the harsh deserts of the northern Atacama. So you want to go a place where there's virtually no weather or above the weather. Here's the summit of Mauna Kea. This is kind of like the premier piece of, of, of primo real estate for astronomy. Um, the two Keck 10-meter telescopes are here. The giant 8.2-meter diameter Subaru telescope. A series of sub-millimeter radio telescopes that don't want a lot of water vapor above them a 4-meter Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, the 8-meter Gemini telescope, and a couple smaller University of Hawaii telescopes that may eventually be torn down to make way for a next-generation large telescope. There are dozens of telescopes up on top of Mauna Kea. Over that, that's one of the beautiful sites. But it's bone dry and it's brutal on the summit. I've worked for a number of nights up here at the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope. I had some time with a Canadian colleague. Um, there's two things about flying to Hawaii to, uh, to go observing. One is that up at 14,000 feet, that's snow. There is snow in Hawaii, but it's up at 14,000 feet elevation. And so there you are. You fly into Honolulu, and you get catch your inter-island jet to take you over to the big island. You usually fly into Hilo and rent a car to go up to the base station and then up to the summit. So there you are. Everyone's in their flip-flops, all the tourists in their flip-flops and their shorts and their luau shirts. And you're staying there in jeans with a down parka over your arm. And you're in the middle of Hawaii and everyone's just abusing you. And it's like, oh, what, are you, what are you, cold? You know, it's like 80 degrees and humid out. And the, the, the flight attendants all know where you're going. Would you like some hot coffee, sir? You know, it just, it just, they just give you a, a hard time. But believe me, I have never been colder in my life than on the summit of Mauna Kea. It was cold. But the, the, the other side of that is, when my observing was done, beach time. 
I spent a lot of time at the beach. Don't worry about this list. This is just for illustration purposes. This is a list of all the telescopes, oh, and I've even accidentally left off one, that are bigger than 8 meters in diameter now. There's the 10-meter CAC, and what should be up here is the 10.5-meter Grand Telescope of the Canaries. There's an 8-meter telescope built by the Japanese up on Mauna Kea. The United States and the UK and Canada have built two 8-meter telescopes, one in the north and one in the south. The northern one is on Mauna Kea. The southern one is on Cerro Pachon, which is up in the Chilean Andes. Um, that's why they're called the Gemini telescopes. It's a pair, so we have the full northern and southern hemisphere. Throughout the course of the year, we can see the whole sky from them. The Europeans went in with both feet and hands. They built four 8-meter class telescopes on top of Cerro Paranal, which is up in the Chilean Atacama. They went up, picked a mountain, blasted the top 20 meters of it, sawed it flat, and erected four large telescopes up there. It's an awesome sight. And Ohio State has actually gotten into the game. We are partners with the Arizona, Italy, Germany, and the Research Corporation of Tucson in the twin 8.4-meter large binocular telescope. Two 8.4-meter diameter mirrors on a single mount acting together as a binocular telescope. When combined, the total light-gathering power is equivalent to a single mirror with a diameter of 11.8 meters. We are now the world's largest optical infrared telescope on a single mount. So we're number one. Here are some pictures of those telescopes. This is the Keck 1 and Keck 2 telescopes. These are giant segmented mirror type telescopes. These are really, this is a really gorgeous sight. I really had a really fun night when my last runs at CFHT. Keck 1 was in operation, but Keck 2 was just coming online, and the observer let a couple of us go and just crawl all over it. It's, it's an amazing machine. It's really, really cool. Okay. Those are optical wavelength and infrared wavelength telescopes. They're the things that you can go out and you, know, you can buy if you have a few hundred million dollars, or you can get smaller ones now. Computer-controlled amateur telescopes are very common. We can also build radio telescopes. These, instead of using big mirrors, you'd be use big collecting areas like satellite dishes to basically receive radio waves from space. Radio waves are interesting because hydrogen and molecules emit, emit radiation at radio and millimeter wavelength radiation that can give us a handle on molecular material in interstellar space. You also get radio continuum noise coming off of things like hot electrons or electrons accelerated by very strong magnetic fields. We're not going to see a whole lot of radio astronomy in this class, but Astronomy 162, you'll see bits and pieces of it there. You can also, in the radio, use a trick called interferometry, where you gang together multiple antennas to synthesize having a gigantic antenna many kilometers across. And in fact, the latest iteration of this has got a telescope using an orbiting satellite that actually makes a telescope whose diameter is equivalent to the diameter of the Earth. So you can really get into some really crazy stuff there. Here's some examples of these radio telescopes. The largest single-dish radio telescope in the world is the 304-meter or 1,000-foot diameter Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico. It's built into a natural bowl valley up in the Puerto Rican highlands just off the coast there, a place called Arecibo. The locals call it El Radar. They think it's actually used by the CIA to bounce radar signals off the, off the atmosphere. This is the, an example of a radio interferometer. It's out in the New Mexico desert. It's called the Very Large Array. Those of you who may have seen the science fiction movie Contact, sections of it were filmed out here on the plains here of, uh, near the VLA facility. This has 27, 25-meter diameter radio dishes mounted on rails so you can reconfigure the array to do various kinds of experiments. 
If you're ever out in New Mexico, it's up near Socorro, New Mexico, it's really worth taking a side trip to see this. It's really cool. The OSU used to have a radio telescope. It was called the Big Ear. It was about the size of a football field. It was up, um, it was up by Delaware. Where if you, any, any of you have been up to the Perkins Observatory, it used to be out back behind Perkins Observatory. It's now a golf course. Um, unfortunately, it was decommissioned and demolished back in 1998. But it was actually one of the original radio telescopes to map the radio sky um, and was also one of the earliest telescopes to be, be engaged in the early phases of what was called the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, to search for signals, radio signals coming from um, ET. Mm, didn't find anything, but it was a start in the, whole, in the whole way of doing this. Now, radio visible and infrared light can penetrate the Earth's atmosphere and make it to the ground, so it's practical to build radio telescopes, optical and IR telescopes here on the Earth. But what if I want to do X-ray astronomy or gamma-ray astronomy or some kinds of infrared astronomy, deep infrared astronomy? Then I'm in trouble. I need to go up into space. I need to get above the atmosphere. And the wavelengths for where we get the biggest gain by going into orbit is middle to far infrared. Real, honest-to-God heat radiation, but now heat radiation from things that are 30 degrees Kelvin rather than you know, 300 Kelvin room temperature. Ultraviolet radiation. It's a good thing the UV light doesn't get to the ground and sunburn us every time we walk outside, but it's a real bother if you want to observe ultraviolet radiation from space as an astronomer. And X-rays and gamma rays, you have to get well above the atmosphere because they're absorbed by the atoms and molecules in the atmosphere. The other thing about space is it gets you above the weather and it gets you above the atmosphere. And so that actually helps you out a lot because that means you don't have any clouds coming and interrupting your observing. You don't have the atmosphere twinkling away and ruining your seeing. The problem is, if you thought ground-based telescopes were expensive, space-based observing is exceedingly expensive. For example, the Ohio State University could, if it decided to build a two and a half meter diameter telescope and set it up on any mountain in Arizona, probably spend three, four million dollars tops, including instruments. The Hubble Space Telescope is five billion dollars and counting, and it's only a two and a half meter diameter telescope. The total operations and capital costs of Hubble is five billion plus now. Each shuttle mission costs half a billion dollars to go up and visit it. It's really expensive to operate in space, and it's really hard. But the payoffs are phenomenal. Here's the Hubble Space Telescope. I've done a lot of my research work using Hubble. Unfortunately, I have to stay on the ground. I can't go up for a visit. But it's in low Earth orbit, and it, above the atmosphere, above the weather, it's amazing. This is the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope. It's really cold in space. You can make your telescope cold. One of the problems of working in the infrared is hot things radiate in the infrared. Like we're radiating like mad at 10 microns wavelength. Operating in middle to infrared wavelengths from the ground is like observing with the lights turned on, except it's because your telescope is glowing as bright as anything you're trying to look at. So you put it up in space with a big tank of liquid helium and you make the whole thing as cold as you possibly can. And this is an absolutely phenomenal observatory. It's just about ready to run out of helium but it simply revolutionized our view of the infrared, of the infrared sky. X-rays, you need to use some really fancy, fancy designs to, to detect X-rays. High-energy photons just want to pass through everything, but you can, in fact, concentrate them. You can build funky X-ray telescopes that are basically nested paraboloids of gold mirrors. They're really crazy, but they work beautifully. 
Chandra, XMM, and a couple of high-orbiting X-ray satellites have completely changed our view of the high-energy universe. We're finding energy from X-rays from some of the earliest sources to light up in, in, the, in the night sky. So these are the tools of the astronomer. Modern telescopes are just the light gathering. Behind those telescopes, we have to record the light. We use a number of very sensitive digital instruments to record and analyze light that comes to us from the telescopes. We use digital cameras now, CCD detectors like you find in high-end digital cameras, infrared cameras like super-duper versions of military thermal sites are basically the same technology behind our infrared sensor arrays, and a variety of optical and infrared spectrographs. The Ohio State University, you may not know this, is in fact one of the world's leading builders of advanced telescopic instruments. We've built cameras and spectrographs from more than 10 telescopes on five continents, and we're building an uh, optical spectrograph for the Large Binocular Telescope. Just very quickly show you some of our facilities. OSU has built instruments, for example, for the MDM Observatory, a 2.5 and 1.3 meter diameter telescope that we share with Columbia, Dartmouth, Michigan, and The Ohio University. On top of Kitt Peak, there's the Kitt Peak National Observatory in the background. We get 90 nights a year on each of these telescopes. This is our premier research observatory now. Here's the 2.4 meter and the 1.3 meter are of these open mirror designs. We also are a founding member of the SMARTS Consortium, Small and Medium Aperture Research Telescopes is what SMARTS stands for. It was founded by Yale and a number of other institutions, including OSU. OSU has built instruments for two of the telescopes, and we're currently negotiating to build a large spectrograph for the third of these, this telescope up here. It's in the high mountains of Chile. It's a really great place to go, high, high area, beautiful view. This particular camera here on the 1.3 meter telescope has so far been instrumental in the discovery of four extrasolar planets, planets around other stars. And we're a one-sixth partner in the Large Binocular Telescope, which is a large, oops, a large telescope using two 8.4 meter diameter mirrors on a single steel mount. This is the picture of the LBT in construction in Italy. It was built on a big plant in Italy and then shipped to the United States and reassembled on top of Mount Graham. Getting the pieces up the hill was uh, exciting to say the least, but it in fact is now fully assembled and we are going through a two to three year process of instrumenting it. Here are its two mirrors ready to observe the sky, the sunset being reflected inside of them. The mirrors were aluminized using a special system developed at Ohio State for depositing a thousand atom thick layer of aluminum on an 8.4 meter diameter piece of glass. That's quite a trick. Someday maybe we'll, we'll say a little bit about how that's done. It takes very, very beautiful images. In fact, the most beautiful seeing I have seen from any place, anywhere on the Earth observing, was in fact on large binocular telescope last March. I got seeing so good it was within a factor of three of the Hubble Space Telescope. Beautiful pictures of galaxies, but this is my baby. This is MODS, the multi-object double spectrograph. It's basically, we've been talking about spectroscopy the last couple of days. We're going to build a spectrograph to go on the back of the LBT. We're going to build two of them, one for each mirror. To give you some idea of the physical scale of this instrument, it's four and a half meters long, two and a half meters in diameter, 2,700 kilos of moving mass. Okay, my baby is a big baby, and there are two of them. We are currently finishing the first of these spectrographs. Um, I'm the lead, in, I'm the lead uh, scientist on this project. Hopefully by the end of this 
school year, about May or June, we will have the first of these fully assembled down in McPherson Lab. And next summer, we'll be shipping it out to Arizona to put up on the telescope up at 10,000 feet. We hope to get the first specter of the sky on this thing sometime late November, early December of next year. The second one will follow a year later. So if any of you come back and take 162 from me, maybe in 2009, I'll be able to show you some spectra of it. And if you come find me and ask real nice, kind of in May or June, I might take you down to the basement and show you the spectrograph. Any questions? Good. In that case, have a good weekend. I'll see you all on Monday.